This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Immunotherapy and immuno-oncology have become such a hot area of focus in the last couple of years. We're going to be looking into the forces that have coalesce to make that so. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. We're talking with Dr. Katir Patel, a scientist from HelioDX with a keen interest in immunotherapy and companion diagnostics. We're going to be looking at the role of digital pathology in enabling immune oncology. And what about new technologies such as multiplexing, artificial intelligence, and computational pathology? How will these tools allow us to develop new solutions and push pathology into the forefront of immune oncology. Dr. Katir Patel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me today. Great to be here. You have a keen interest in immune oncology and biomarkers and developing predictive and prognostic tools and companion diagnostics. How did you get interested in that field? And tell us a little bit about your interest in digital pathology. I did my PhD in immunology over at University of Massachusetts Amherst. I think really that's kind of where my uh, draw towards immunology, vaccines, therapeutics, immunotherapies all really kind of got started. So, you know, over the years, I've worked in a variety of different roles in different organizations that were really focused in digital pathology primarily, specifically in the space of like multiplex IHC was where I'd say the majority of my career kind of spent spent my time. And so with that, you know, I've seen a huge utility in being able to be able to get more information from tissue-based FFPE slides on a daily basis than, than I think we've seen in the past. IHC has been something that's been around for you know, well over 100 years, and it's been the gold standard for oncology uh, in terms of diagnosis and as well as understanding what potential therapeutics may be uh, useful for a specific patient population. But there's a lot of information that's left behind that I think you just miss by simply examining that sample with just the, the naked eye. And digital pathology, I think, has been a tool to, I think, at a simplest level, just really manage samples and data a little bit more efficiently provide access to, to world-round experts easily by just transferring them digitally. But I think also on the other end, the analytics that can be provided by things like AI and advanced image analysis tools can really get you a lot more information out of a single sample to give you a better perspective as to an individual patient's use case and really move towards that whole concept of precision medicine in personalized medicine within the IO uh, field. I kind of think of it as we're right in the midst of the perfect storm that's been brewing. All these forces are coming together, coalescing, so advances in new tools or even some old tools such as immunohistochemistry and immunofluorescence. And now, of course, we're able to uh, sequence cells down to the at the level of the cell. But then I think digital pathology and the advent of our ability to do computational pathology to actually measure these things and then multiplex and then to put them into complex algorithms, I think is really going to fuel precision medicine. And it's interesting what has passed for, for precision medicine, or maybe the IHC has performed well, but I think even in current use and in the last few years, just the results of a single IHC marker have been enough, I guess, depending on how you look at it, have been enough or have been so good that it's provided insight as to who's likely to benefit or not from a particular therapy. But I think we're about to launch into a whole new era. So, and we'll get to that later in the podcast, but immune oncology and immunotherapy has become such a hot area. 
just in recent years. And why do you think it is that it's become such a focus in recent years? What forces have aligned to make this so? I mean, obviously, you know, new drugs have come on the market, such as Merck's Keytruda, the PD-1 inhibitor. But what forces have aligned to bring us to where we are? Really, the idea there with the immunotherapies is that for a long time, you know, you know, cancer's existed since forever, right? I mean, it's the ending of nature at probably its, its simplest over time. So I think when the first, you know, checkpoint inhibitors and things like that started to come up, like PDL1, it was a dramatic step away from simply identifying a tumor, cutting it out, looking for clean margins, and then following up with radiation or potentially some chemo. Um, you know, immune therapy was really showing the fact that immunotherapy is really showing that the power of the immune system is tremendous in being able to really fight off cancer and prevent relapse over time. Obviously, PDL1 and PDL1 inhibitors and things of that nature were really landmark and uh, really driving this. And since then, you've seen tons of different uh, combo therapies and single uh, immune checkpoint therapies coming out. And the benefits speak for themselves. I mean, you're seeing patients with really late stage tumors living much longer and having better qualities of life just because they're using the immune system to fight the fight that tumor in combination with reduced dosages of things like radiation. Long term, you're really effectively managing that patient's care better and more effectively. So it was a natural tendency to, to really use something that's less invasive, but essentially more powerful, I think, at the end of the day to fight off, fight off cancer. I mean, I think that's right. People forget, but it is obvious, you know, or maybe even common sense that the first defense against cancer is, of course, our immune system and that cancers may be arising spontaneously and before they even come to attention may be suppressed or defeated by the patient's own immune system. So where are we today in terms of immunotherapy, in terms of unmet needs? Like is therapeutics uh, leading the way and the diagnostics need to catch up to that? Or are we finding so much more out in the diagnostic landscape that we know we're identifying what the targets are and what the pathways are, and we really need therapeutics to come up to speed? Is the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog? The perspective, at least my perspective. (laughs) That's a great question. Um, At least from my time and my, my perspective right now, I think the key immunotherapies that are on the market have been there for quite a while. And I think one of the big pushes you're seeing in a lot of the clinical trials that are coming out today are combination therapies, right? So being able to better use a multitude of different tools on a single patient case. And so I think those are in phase where, I mean, they're really trying to evaluate how effective that is. And if you look at any large pharmacy um, or biopharmacy pipeline, you'll see a number of new compounds coming up daily uh, that are going into testing in terms of immunotherapies and ways to turn on or activate the immune system to better fight tumors. So I think for the immunotherapy place, we're, we're doing a great job. And I think some of the data is going to really start coming out over the next two to three years about the efficacy of some of these combos. Where I really think we're falling a little bit behind is on the diagnostic end. And I think the diagnostic end is, is really challenging because, I mean, if you look across multiple indications, I mean, there's only still a handful of really good predictive tools that are being used to really identify patients that would be responders versus non-responders that are out there. I mean, PDL one is the PDL one test is still in the number of PDL one clones that are out there, right, for example, are a ton. It's almost chaos um, in trying to determine which one to use, when to use it for the indication. It's kind of been this big catch-all. So I think you need more metrics, more more markers potentially, or better signatures. And it doesn't necessarily need to be just uh, IHC-based, but you know, taking advantage of things like NGS, where you can really get the right therapy to the right patients. Because I, I firmly do believe that in a lot of the 
clinical trials that you know are progressing into late stage two and potentially moving into stage three intend to fail, they have to do two things, right? They need to be effective and be better than the standard of care that's currently out there. But you also need to be able to correctly identify the ideal patient population that will be able to benefit from that potential therapeutic. And so if you don't have a good way to stratify patients and understand key biomarker signatures that will really give you a predictive value as to someone that would respond versus someone that wouldn't, it really means the end for a specific drug. I mean, you could develop a therapeutic for, say, for example, like triple negative breast cancer, and you're looking for some sort of biomarker signature outside the, the standard three, obviously, like, you know, if we're looking at CD8 infiltration or T-cell infiltration of some nature, and you think it's going to apply to all uh, breast cancers, but if you don't segregate your patient population correctly, and you don't identify the fact that maybe it's only this subset that have a certain population of macrophage cells present within the tumor that are responders, that drug is going to meet its end. And it wasn't a failure of the drug. It was a failure of identifying the key signature that would be predictive in a relaying response to that therapeutic. And I think that's really where the challenge is. And that's where the space is really needing to spend some more time to, to focus in on. I think a lot of people are scratching their heads when they see the drug out there, specifically Keytruda. And they, you know, they know all of this work that's going on behind the scenes. They know, you know, scientists like you working on developing these biomarkers and they say, well, this is, this is what we have, uh, a single IHC pdl one stain to determine if these patients are eligible. And I think, you know, people are scratching their heads and they think, what, what's going on here? So let, let's come back to that. And then let's, so, and then you also brought up histologic features and now we have digital pathology. So where do you see the current state of the art for digital pathology in immune oncology? We've known, you know, for a long time, since the 1920s or the 1930s, that tumor infiltrating lymphocytes correlated with response or outcome in breast cancer patients. So, and this is just simple H&E features. Is there promise or potential there to, you know, not only quantify tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, but other histologic features using digital pathology to predict response to immune therapy? Sure. So I think it's a combination of two different pieces. At the core of this, I just, just as a kind of, to preempt my, my next few statements as I go, I firmly believe, you know, pathologists are still needing to be part of this whole process. I think sometimes when people talk about digital pathology, AI, and things, you know, advanced analytics, it eliminates this whole pathologist piece. I think Pathologists are key and still centralized to the determination of how these things are really read out. I think the idea for digital pathology is to provide more tools and better insights and more information to pathologists to better predict and separate different types of tumor cases. And so I think histologically speaking, I think there's a lot to be learned from AI, where AI can really start to pick up on different features within the tumor and characteristics that necessarily can't be thought of by a single person in terms of scale, but you're seeing certain patterns and features that necessarily aren't wildly obvious, especially in rarer cancers, right? I mean, you, you don't end up having, you could be a pathologist that only sees a specific handful of a specific type of tumor case in their entire career. So things like AI help kind of bridge that gap. I think one of the more important pieces to kind of add to it is, you know, looking at other biomarkers that are maybe being expressed or not expressed within a specific sample. G general infiltration of the immune system is a good predictor, but when you're looking at things like checkpoint inhibitors and, and you know, looking at to manipulate parts of the immune system to better fight a tumor, 
tumor, you really need to know what those cells are expressing or not expressing for even defining macrophages better than just straight macrophages into M1 versus M2 is quite key. Both have very different effects in uh, repercussions if they're present within the tumor marker environment. You know, M1s are very anti-tumor. And then you have your M2, which are actually pro-tumor, right? Your suppressive features of macrophages. And you can identify them histologically speaking, but the expression of specific markers like 206 and 163 and things like that are, are going to be key to really understanding what population are they? Are they pro-tumor or anti-tumor? And that may be a real key signature in determining whether a specific therapeutic may be of benefit for a patient or not. Accurately subtyping these families of macrophages and, and immune cells perhaps now can only be done using ancillary studies or markers or IHC or aminofluorescence and so on. So what about our ability to multiplex? This is a recent development in the last couple of years. So what's kind of the state of the art of multiplexing? What do you see as the future? Because we're getting the ability to multiplex tens or even hundreds of analytes. Realistically, is that going to be more of a research tool or is that going to be used in practice? And then is it necessary? Don't genes kind of cluster in families or pathways? You know, some are upstream or downstream of others. So maybe we could multiplex hundreds, but really couldn't we just look at maybe a family or groups of genes like five to 10 that could essentially capture the same information potentially as, as you could with a hundred. That's a great question. So I'll try and break that down in a couple different ways. You know, I think the, the level of Plex is, you know, it's getting pretty high these days. I mean, there's certain platforms out there that are going well beyond 60 markers and, uh, you know, they're being mass spec based nanostring DSPs and ge geomics platforms have that same sort of feature too, where they can do these high levels of Plexing with well over 40. All very interesting. I think some of the higher Plexing platforms are really great in uh, discovery type research, even early phase uh, translational work where you're really trying to screen maybe different um, compounds or understand different uh, immune signatures of interest. Uh, and I really use, I really think the higher plexing tools fit in a way where they really give you a high level perspective of hotspots or hotspot signatures that are within a specific tumor indication or therapy, right? Um, and I think when you get closer into the lower levels of plexing, you start to get more single cell resolution. You can really get whole slide visualization, things like that, where this is actually kind of bridging you towards, you know, MOA and efficacy and things of that nature, which are much more like late stage translational uh, type work where, you know, your products, you know, your, your compounds really been identified. Now you're really trying to understand, you know, how well is it working? What are the key cells? phenotypes that are relevant within that tumor microenvironment for in terms of effectiveness or not effectiveness and then narrowing that down even further as you move towards a clinical trial or clinical application you start at 50 to find your compound and to screen you know to, to screen at high volume as you're really trying to understand and tease apart the MOA as well as efficacy you know that's probably more of a anywhere from 8 to 12 marker type territory and you really like to have whole slide single cell resolution as well as being able to still have the pathology I'll just review it at the single marker level as needed. And then as you go to a clinical application, you should really have it a little bit more narrowed down to maybe one, two, maybe three myomarkers of at max. Which even now, I don't think there's a single um, indication out there that, that has a clinical, well, of clinical relevance that has a three marker assay associated with it all on the same slide. 
the idea is to, to use these multiplexing tools to really narrow in on the key biomarker signature. And then when you scale to a clinical application, ideally you'd have a single biomarker signature to use, which can if, which fits much better into how pathologists are classically trained on H&E and in single-plex bright field interpretation, as well as what clinical workflows look like. You know, Not every hospital laboratory or clinical laboratory is going to have a mass spec-based multiplexing platform available or the funds to run it or the expertise to run those types of things. They're not really there. You can see how these things can typically narrow down into a funnel because they give you a lot of information. And what I'm seeing more and more is that as projects for, for some of the larger biopharmas move into early phase clinical trial, they're trying to include more biomarkers um, at that stage than I think they did in the past, especially in like the IHC world. Because uh, I think here, they're trying to really essentially cast a little bit of a safety net. And I think this goes back to that point about patient stratification. You may have an indication that you think is fully determined on pdl one positivity, but you know, CD8 and macrophage populations or you know, NK cell, cell populations may be an additional hypothesis you were interested in testing. So they may keep those markers within a, a multiplex panel as they go into clinical trial. And if they all of a sudden you know, are making their determination on PDL1 positivity and they, they're not seeing great efficacy, they could actually go back and data mine and see that, hey, if we actually segregated on NK cell populations or infiltration, we're actually getting great response. So it really can help get a, you know, what may be a failing clinical trial back on track by having a little bit wider of a net. And when they eventually went to clinic, you know, they'd say it's probably an NK cell based biomarker assay to determine inclusion exclusion versus something that they initially started out at PDL1, which may have just led to a dead end, for example. That's kind of my perspective on where these multiplex tools stand. Tremendous research tools, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. But the higher you're plexing you go, the less clinically applicable it is. And it, and it should be a gradual funnel as you move through the different phases of research. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think many of us more on the clinical end may not appreciate that, that if we're looking at a tool that is a single gene or single analyte marker, that that may have been the result of studying many, many, many hundreds of pathways and multiplexing many different markers, many different methodologies to determine actually what is the single best one. And that's also interesting, you know, in clinical practice, you know, you'll what's important is very often different. Yes, clinicians, what, what they want in a good assay. And you think, well, obviously we want something that identifies the right patients for the right drug, but also in that is we want a fast turnaround time. And we want it to work every time. You could have the best test in the world. If it's a multiplex panel and one of the genes doesn't work, you might have to throw out the whole result. Whereas if we can have something that's simple and robust and works 99% of the time, that's going to be much more practical. And then what are pathologists actually trained and accustomed to using in the real world? And it's probably generally going to be, you know, just a handful of markers or probably, you know, maybe even just one or two markers. So what about, similar to multiplexing, what about a multi-omics approach? Uh, you know, is this more of a research tool and is, is this realistic? We all know the fundamental dogma of molecular biology, DNA to RNA to protein. And then of course, now we know of different RNA species out there and other DNA associated proteins and, and so on. So how does a multi-omics approach fit in? So I think the multi-omics approach is quite key. And I think this is what, again, what I think pharma has really been spending a lot of time doing, where it's not just restricting themselves to one specific platform or technology as they move something through a pipeline. The multi-omic approach is 
what platform is going to give you the best visualization of the key signatures that are most relevant for your research use, right? There are some panels that, you know, some indications where a simple NGS assay, not simple, but uh, an NGS-based assay will give you a much better insight for inclusion, exclusion, or or efficacy than an IHC-based assay would be. And the same thing with things like RNA-ish, for example. There's plenty of analytes that are out there that you can't probe with standard antibodies just through the fixation process, things like that, or even just uh, stability. So having a look at the RNA for something like IL-15 agonists or something like that is a great tool. So it's really trying to fit the, the best tool for your specific research initiative that you can get. And I think the other piece too is a little bit of orthogonal validation, right? You know, using other platforms to confirm what you think you're seeing with one of the initial tools you may have started using. And that's also quite key. And I think where the space probably struggles the most is, you know, kind of integrating and interpreting those data together. You know, they may have very successful programs that are independent of each other, one for NGS, one for IHC, one for RNA-seq or RNA-ish. But when you start getting those teams to try and talk together and how you normalize and interlope that data together into a single readout that becomes actionable, right? And I think that's the key at the end of the day, that you need to be able to interpret this into something that you can make a, uh, an effective action on that will be beneficial for the patient at the end of the day is key but is also the challenge. And I think that's really where some of the advanced analytic uh, type tools and things of that nature are really important in terms of development to help really streamline the best tool for the job in a given situation. The best tool for the job. So it sounds like it's even messy in research. Do you see a day where there could be a multi-omics approach in clinical practice? I know clinicians and pathologists hear about this and they kind of salivate just thinking about the possibilities or how we could get so much more information. But you know, to me, it just seems very complicated. So do, is it realistic in a clinical setting? I, I, so actually, I think there's some use cases that are out there and they're kind of considered like these last chance type panels and offerings that some some organizations are putting together where they'll we'll have patients that have been non-responsive to typical therapies and go through a battery of kind of broad testing using a variety of different platforms to see if there are signatures that are popping up that may help with potential new therapies or treatments uh, for them since you know they've hit roadblocks for what's pretty much standard for their specific indication the, I think we're at the very tip of that you know we, you know we're just starting to see some of these things starting to pop up so you know I'm actually quite optimistic that that is something that we can that, that will be able to, to happen in the future but I think at, at the more granular level, it's going to take a, a little bit of time and a little bit of history to really understand all the different signatures and how do those play well or not play so well to each other and what do they really mean at the end of the day? Because even still, as we initially started this conversation, a lot of the stuff that we're doing in clinic, it's single, it's single marker, right? How do you start interpreting that single marker IHC with NGS data and, and RNA data at the same time? If they have two spikes and one's low, what does that mean? And how do you react in terms of um, clinical practice? That's really the challenge, right? And that's really also the risk that you face as a clinician on that the other side of the fence on, on, on the interpretation of that result. And so that's why I think right now you're only seeing that uh, kind of popping up for really patients that don't have many other options left. And so, you know, there is a little bit of room for deviation, but for, you know, patients that are in your classic stage, you know, late stage one or stage two type cancers, it's something from even just clinical practice. It's something that you really can't do just yet. The, the goal is to get there one day. Speaking of that single IHC marker, Merck's Keytruda, which has been one of the great success stories, I think depending on how you count it as something like 26 different indications for various tumor types. And there's one single 
IHC marker out there. And as I kind of suggested before, people are scratching their heads and thinking, one, is this the best we can do? And two, how can we do better? And what I'm seeing out there is so various digital pathology platforms and companies looking to develop algorithms to better score the PDO on IHC utilizing digital pathology, I think is one approach. Another approach is companies looking to develop better epitopes you know, for the PDL one, can we get a better functioning IHC marker? And you know, and then, kind of everything else, can we develop a multiplexing approach using different methodologies to better predict response to the therapy? You know, so can you shed some light on this? What you know, what's going on? How much work actually went in to P- the PDL one IHC stain so that that became the companion diagnostic? Can we do better? And what do you see on the horizon there? So I, th- I think we could absolutely do better. I think PDL one has had a fantastic contribution to the space. Uh, you know, there's no denying that whatsoever. But I think as you've seen, it, you know, apply to multiple indications, there is a little bit more to be said about what else could be added to it. And I mean, if you go through the publications that are out there, Bernie Fox out of Providence Cancer Center presented a paper a number of year, years back. I think it was 2017, where CD8 proximity to PDL one was actually a better indicator, a better predictor of response and survival than PDL one alone, right? So there's ways to even improve upon what we're already doing there. I actually had published a paper with David Rim and Fahad Ahmed over at Yale about a year and a half ago that was actually looking at triple negative breast cancer and looking at PDL one in both macrophages the sample itself is in its relation to CD8, and it ended up showing that PDL1 on the macrophage was actually much more predictive of response than anything else within that sample. So uh, I think you're starting to see that you know potential combinations and improvements on building upon what we already know is really what we should be focusing in on. It's not to say that PDL1 needs to go out the door. It's a PDL1. It's a great assay, and you know there's been lots of lots of money over the years being pushed into the research of developing better antibodies for it. And there's a number now. I can't even tell you off the top of my head the number of clinically relevant clones that are available now, but there are a number of of them. And I think the, the consistency between them is pretty good. So I think in the next phase is really building upon that data set by including other markers to maybe better understand, you know, the, the predictive value of PDL one with conjunction of an, an extra biomarker being present. Yeah, it has been certainly one of the great success stories. And I think that's a good approach building on what we already know. So Katir Patel, thank you so much for being with us. Before we wrap up, maybe just tell us what excites you and where do you see things going in the next 10 years or so? So I think right now, probably the most exciting thing for me is to is seeing the initiation of all these new combination therapies that are coming out. I think it's important for two different phases. I think you know, at the patient level, you're going to see a tremendous uh, response in the immune system in terms of responding to the tumor itself and you know activating um, your own self uh, self-defense mechanisms which is going to be fantastic to see but i think on the diagnostic side it's really going to push people to have to develop better diagnostic testing uh, to be- get better patient stratification when you have pdl1 as being your single marker for just catruda alone but now when you add catruda with the two or three other type of combo therapies one biomarker is not going to be enough it's going to really force the industry to really start focusing on looking at other analytes potentially in context with PDL1 or even using other platforms or technologies in order to do so. And I think the more we can do there on really stratifying patient populations, the better we're going to get at really delivering this whole concept of precision medicine and having people live longer and healthier lives at the end of the day. Yeah, longer and healthier lives. I think that is a very worthy goal. Well, our guest has been (laughs) Dr. Katir Patel. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.